This Great Women of Business podcast is sponsored by Pitney Bowes. No matter what your small office needs or sends, Pitney Bowes Send Pro C200 has you covered. The C200 lets you send mail and packages right from your desk. Start saving today and get a free 60-day trial of a Pitney Bowes C200. Visit us online at pb.com slash women. That's pb.com slash women. Terms apply. See site for details. When people looked at her, they didn't see anything special at all. Just another washerwoman struggling to make it through another day. They couldn't see the contents of her mind. They couldn't see that this humble black woman was putting a plan together. One day, she knew she would make something of herself. One day, she would run a business that would stretch across North America. Driven by necessity, Sarah Breedlove would transform herself into the noble Madam C.J. Walker. She would cure women of scalp disease and hair loss with revolutionary hair care products and lift up her community by involving them in her vast mail-order business network. She would help lead her community to brighter days and lift them up through business and philanthropy. She was a woman guided by a vision of a better future. Sarah Breedlove would follow her dream of the future and end up becoming one of the wealthiest businesswomen in America. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who changed the face of business. We tell you how they changed the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. But now, let's get back to the future Madam C.J. Walker, known at birth as Sarah Breedlove. She was a legend whispered about for decades by African-Americans with both pride and disbelief. Since her death in 1919, has been reputed to be the first black female millionaire, certainly built a fortune, and she started out very, very poor because she was born in 1867, right after slavery. So she had pretty much nothing and built her own business, a workforce of thousands, and, you know, endured for generations. Madam C.J. Walker was her name. The Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company revolutionized the business of hair care and cosmetics in America and did it solely by focusing their products on the needs of the black community. She created a multinational workforce of black women, turning her best customers into her devoted sales agents. Sarah learned early that her own success was tied to her communities. Through their collective struggle, she perceived a particular need for guidance and support. This became her guiding business principle. Necessity is the mother of invention. And invent she did. Out of nothing but soap suds, Sarah built an empire. 
Throughout the episode, we'll track each of her supporting business principles as they emerge and illustrate how they always tied back to her primary mantra regarding necessity. Sarah wasn't just a leader for her contemporaries, but an inspiring figure for all female businesswomen to come. However, this worth was nearly erased by an American South weighed down by troubled Reconstruction following the Civil War and boiling racial resentments. So how did a woman born under the shadow of slavery even perceive that she could one day become a successful leader? It all began on December 23, 1867, when she was born to Owen and Minerva Breedlove in Delta, Louisiana. Sarah was one of five siblings, but the only one not born as a slave. She was the great symbol of hope for a family that would face immense tragedy over the coming years. The Breedloves lived on the land of a former slave plantation across the river from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Sarah's primary biographer, her great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, described the conditions in her Madam Walker biography on her own ground, quote, The land was just one or two little houses and shanties near the river, end quote. Sarah worked long hours in the field, ignoring the violence around her, as she tried to help her family pull together a living through subsistence farming. In 1874, when Sarah was old enough for schooling, the state discontinued education funds, so the only real education she received was a few hours a week at the local church. By 1875, both her parents, Owen and Minerva, had died. The causes are unrecorded by history, but the area was always beset with illness. There was a huge lack of sanitation and health care, a problem that would always haunt Sarah. Sarah was taken in by her sister, Lovenia, and Lovenia's abusive husband, Jesse. They moved across the river to the bigger settlement of Vicksburg in 1878. The nicer areas of this city inspired dreams in young Sarah. A writer for the Indianapolis Freeman wrote the following in a profile piece in 1914. Quote, as a child, Sarah craved for the beautiful. She had an inordinate desire to move among the things of culture and refinement, end quote. However, the only work she could find was as a laundress. This was a common trade at the time and one of the few reliable income generators for black women. In 1881, at the age of 14, Sarah married Moses McWilliams. Sarah left little behind to justify her decision here, only that it was important for her to escape the cruel home of Jesse and Lavinia. By 1885, Sarah had a daughter, Lelia. Yet tragedy continued to stalk her, as Moses was dead from unknown causes by 1888. By this time, all three of Sarah's brothers had moved to St. Louis, where a large black population was burgeoning, they found work as barbers in the city. In 1889, Sarah and Lelia followed them there. Even in St. Louis, work as a laundress was the only option for a black woman like Sarah. She made between two and ten dollars a week, or about fifty to a hundred dollars in modern value. However, the local St. Paul's Church was very involved in the community and helped Lelia receive an education, 
Sarah was forever grateful. Yet she remained personally frustrated. She later wrote, quote, I was at my wash tubs one morning with a heavy wash before me. As I bent over the washboard and looked at my arms buried in the soap suds, I said to myself, Who's going to take care of your little girl? This set me to thinking, but with all my thinking, I couldn't see how I, a poor washerwoman, was going to better my condition. End quote. She didn't realize she already had what she needed the desire to better her condition. This soon formed into her earliest business principle. From here on out, Sarah would never settle for less. Her objective to seek out opportunities for growth. This is inspiring when we take into account the immensity of her challenges. Long work as a laundress had begun to take a physical toll. Harsh chemicals like lye seeped into her skin and hair. That hair, usually kept tightly bound and hidden from the judgmental glances of white society, was now falling out in clumps. She was only 23 years old when this began. Even sadder, this wasn't a unique problem. Due to poverty, insufficient means of hygiene, a lack of cleaning supplies, poor diets, and common scalp diseases, this affliction affected many poor black women at the time. This compounded with the fact that these women already faced harsh beauty standards. Black hairstyles were looked down upon. The popular look at the time was known as the Gibson Girl, and she had long, straight, and luxuriously shiny hair. But Sarah's new business principle guided her to a solution. First, she began seeing a self-sufficient man, Charles Joseph Walker, known as C.J., a self-made hustler, he sold newspaper subscriptions and ads. Sarah and CJ found they shared a common ambition. Sarah remained focused on improving herself, so she didn't marry CJ right away. In 1903, the 36-year-old Sarah began attending night school after long hours of work. She became more involved at St. Paul's, even organizing charity events for those less fortunate than her. What seemed like charity was actually Sarah's second emergent business principle. If she became socially involved, she could better her community and her own network at the same time. The more one surrounded oneself with the successful and influential, the more successful and influential one could become. That social capital led to opportunity. In today's world, the food businesses Every Table and Local represent a similar principle. Both startups focused in on the South Los Angeles community, where diabetes and obesity were huge issues. The communities were being exploited and drained by corporate fast food. So these businesses decided to work with the community instead of against them. They worked to produce affordable fast food that still had real nutritional value, and they employed members of the community in their businesses at fair wages. Local likes to brand itself more as a community center than a restaurant. There's always free internet and a place for citizens to gather and relax. For Local's head chefs, Roy Choi and Daniel Patterson, the business is entirely for the community. All profit goes into improving local life. However, while the restaurant local may never make millions of dollars, 
It does a public service while also increasing awareness for Choi and Patterson's other restaurants, like Kogi Barbecue and Alta. It's a win-win scenario, and the chefs hope the concept can be adapted and spread throughout other low-income communities in the country. Sarah's social investment paid off when the biggest opportunity of her life arrived, due to her connections to the community. In 1903, she became a sales agent for Annie Minerva Turnbow, a black businesswoman who sold hair care products to the black community. Sarah met Turnbow through her own efforts to grow back her own hair. When Sarah's hair returned to full health through the use of these products, she asked Turnbow for the chance to work for her. So far, cosmetics had been a controversial subject for the black community. In fact, the industry was rather racist. Most companies were controlled by white business leaders and marketed their products as quote solutions to black hair. Essentially, that solution was always to make hair fall more in line with white beauty standards. These products advertised side by side with extremely racist skin bleach substances. All in all, the main goal of the industry so far had been to erase the culture of its customer base. Turnbow and soon Sarah herself would change all of that. Sarah's new job coincided with the arrival of the World's Fair in 1904. Black scholars and leaders, such as W. E. B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington of the Tuskegee Institute, spoke at the fair and inspired Sarah to see a grand way forward for her community. She learned of the National Association of Colored Women, a group of prominent Black women who had been behind the church program that educated Lelia and gave her the opportunity to attend Knoxville College in 1902. While Sarah did not yet have the social capital to join them, it became a new goal for her life. In 1905, she told C.J. she had a new idea: Turnbow's product shouldn't be limited to the St. Louis market. Sarah had heard stories of Denver, Colorado, a place where the low humidity climate and alkali-infused soil caused even more extreme problems for Black women's hair. Although C.J. believed she was overextending herself, Sarah refused to ever limit her ambition again. She had seen the future at the World's Fair, and she was going to be a part of it. In July 1905, Sarah packed her bags and left for Denver. Leaving C.J. behind for now, and here it was. While Turnbow had built a relatively well-oiled machine in St. Louis, Sarah's personal connection to the problem of self-care and hair health gave her the ability to see how far the necessities of these products reached. She saw that this was a real growth industry. Writer Tananarive Du, who later chronicled Madame Walker's life. Backs up our assertion that this was the primary business principle of Sarah's life. If the first rule of being an entrepreneur is to find a void and fill it, then certainly Madame Walker did that. While America was not a land of true equality, Sarah saw through the chains of her oppression and projected a path forward for herself. As she later wrote, quote, "I got my start by giving myself a start." End quote. Necessity was the mother of invention, and Sarah was about to become the mother of a business empire.
Here's something we think you should know about. If you have a cat, you know the worst part of cat ownership is the litter box. But Pretty Litter solves the pains of having a litter box, all while keeping tabs on your cat's health by changing color when it detects common feline illnesses in your cat's pee. Typical cat litter is heavy, dusty, smells, and you need 30 pounds of it to last a month. But Pretty Litter is lightweight, 80% lighter than other cat litters. One four-pound bag lasts an entire month for one cat. It has the best odor control of any other cat litter, and it's dust-free. So say goodbye to dusty, smelly cat boxes. Pretty Litter ships right to your door every month for free. Just choose your ship dates, skip a month, and cancel any time. Just a better cat litter delivered when you need it. Discover the world's best cat litter today. Go to prettylitter.com and use code WOMEN to get 20% off your first order. That's P-R-E-T-T-Y-L-I-T-T-E-R.com and use code WOMEN. Here's something else we want you to check out. What if you could help businesses across the U.S. go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually? Since 2015, individuals have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform. These individuals have helped to finance nearly 200 large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S. Alongside individual investors, Wonder also works with financial institutions like a prominent Wall Street hedge fund that recently invested over $100 million with Wonder. If you're interested in helping businesses go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually, go to wondercapital.com slash women. That's W-U-N-D-E-R-C-A-P-I-T-A-L dot com slash women. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. Now let's get back to the story. When Sarah arrived in Denver, she knew that Turnbow's products really made a difference and were far better suited to the black working class than the racist products that had dominated the industry before them. This was the need onto which she would lay the foundations of her growth, but it was a difficult start. She arrived in Denver with no connections and only a dollar and fifty cents in her pockets. She spent her days working as a cook in a boarding house. Sarah created her first laboratory in her attic at the end of 1905. After her day shift as a cook, she would retreat to the lab to create her own version of Turnbow's hair products. Once she had her own product, she'd have her own business and not be beholden to anyone. This is when Sarah developed her third business principle. She invested early and often in marketing and advertising. She spent 20 cents of her initial $1.50 to print business cards. This was also her first step away from being an exclusive agent for Turnbow, as only her name, Sarah McWilliams, appeared on the cards. In a later career profile by the Kansas City Star, it was written that, quote, As fast as she earned a little money, she spent it on advertising, spending more on printer's ink in the beginning than she spent on bread and butter, end quote. Her nonstop dedication finally convinced CJ to join her in Colorado, and they were married in 1906. Her business cards changed. 
From here on out, Sarah would be Madame C.J. Walker. The name was inspired by the names of the French aristocracy. Madame Walker would be bringing some class to American cosmetics. At this point, Madame Walker completely abandoned Turnbow's brand. She had her own product and her own business name. She was officially working for herself. Madame Walker's became Madame C.J. Walker's wonderful hair grower. Potentially inspired by some of her husband's hucksterism, Madame Walker crafted a new narrative about her product's history. To quote the Madame herself, I was on the verge of becoming entirely bald. But one night, I had a dream. And in that dream, a big black man appeared to me and told me what to mix for my hair. Some of the remedy was from Africa. But I sent for it, mixed it, put it on my scalp, and in a few weeks my hair was coming in faster than it had ever fallen out. I made up my mind I would begin to sell it. End quote. This was a genius PR move. It appealed directly to our community's sense of culture, especially through the reference to Africa. The ingredients weren't actually that rare. She was probably referring to coconut oil, and that is certainly an ingredient that could be imported from Africa, but this was mostly just a pitch. Combined with petroleum, beeswax, sulfur as a sanitizing substance, and violet extract to mask the sulfur... Madame Walker brewed her own version of the product that Turnbow had used to help Walker grow her hair back. It was a smash hit in Colorado, and Madame Walker began traveling to smaller settlements like Colorado Springs to proffer her services. In the Statesman paper, in an ad organized with her husband C.J.'s assistance, Madame Walker presented before and after photos of herself— Instantly, it connected her with her audience. She was being honest that she had needed the product as well. This was Madame Walker's fourth principle. She saw that by becoming the face of her own company, a business leader can foster trust and personal connections with the consumer base. Many years later, entrepreneur Kimberly Fowler used the same strategy when she created her yoga and cycling business, YAS. A former attorney, Fowler saw that customers were drawn to her own success story and it inspired them to both get fit and join YAS. The VWO blog, focused on analyzing marketing and consumer engagement strategies, recently examined how photographs influence consumer involvement. VWO found that by replacing a generic contact icon on websites or directories with a photograph of a human face, Businesses upped their engagement by 50%. Madam Walker's business was proof of this theory over a hundred years earlier. It's also a clear connection back to her primary principle of following necessity into the marketplace. Madam Walker saw that her own success could be her consumer's success. She continued to develop this into her Walker method. Through more ads in The Statesman, Madam Walker offered classes where people could pay a modest price to see her products in action and learn how to use, and most importantly, sell the products themselves. She was training so-called Walker agents, just as she had once served under Turnbow in St. Louis. 
these agents would sell hair care products just as Madam Walker had sold products to them. But Madam Walker's ambition was more developed than Turnbow's. She envisioned her business with a hive-like structure, not bound by geography. By the end of 1906, she left behind her Denver business in the hands of daughter Lelia and dedicated herself full-time to growing the Walker method into a mail-order system across multiple states. Once again, CJ thought this was a foolish risk to take, but Madam Walker knew it was the right path. All through 1907, Madam Walker traveled through Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. That year, she earned almost $4,000. That's about $100,000 in today's value, and triple her earnings from 1906. Her strategy here was yet another callback to her primary principle of necessity. As she traveled, she directly reached out to local church chapters and black community service groups in each city. Through their established organizations, she would hold classes, train more agents, and sell more product. In other words, she went directly to where the need was greatest. This was a product that every black community could use, and the chance to become an agent of the Walker Method was a business opportunity that many women would never turn down, especially if it was between that and hard labor. Her travels also made Madam Walker realize that her consumers and agents could also contribute to the company's image, just as she herself had done with her before and after photographs. She encouraged them to write about their success stories to her and their local publications. Dallas local Julia Caldwell wrote the following, quote, My hair was the talk of the town. All the people who know me are just wild about my hair. I have to take it down to let them see and feel it for themselves. I tell you I am quite an advertisement here for your goods." End quote. And like that, here was business principle number five. Grassroots marketing can be more effective than any ad. This was a similar strategy as the one used by the California Perfume Company in 1886 although their audience was a white one. Founder David McConnell entrusted door-to-door sales to Purse's foster Ames Albee. As Albee acted as an agent for McConnell's perfume, she devised her own innovation, crafting the Little Dot perfume set. Albee assembled five of the best-selling scents into a cute package she knew would sell to her audience of stay-at-home women. Through Albee's sales technique, McConnell grew an empire. Albie was the first of what would become a legion of Avon girls. Madam Walker's system was a direct forerunner of such a strategy. She found enough success in the Walker method that she closed down their permanent offices in Denver in 1908. She ran her mail order business out of another temporary headquarters in Pittsburgh, chosen so that she could build out a northern wing of her business. This can be seen as a perfect culmination of all she had learned to this point. Upon reaching the city, she contacted local civic leaders, explaining herself and her mission of both financial and communal gain. They wrote the following letter to the city, quote, We, the undersigned, highly recommend Madam C.J. Walker's work and worth. 
as a hair grower. She has no equal. We found her to be a strictly honest, thoroughgoing businesswoman. End quote. She put all of her business principles into action and established herself in a new location faster than ever before. Madam Walker's business made seven thousand dollars in 1908 and nearly nine thousand in 1909, worth about one hundred and fifty thousand in today's value. Also, she had personally trained over fifty Walker Method agents. She began using, to quote her biographer Bundles, common sense lessons during her seminars. To quote the madam herself, "Do you realize that it is as necessary to cultivate the scalp to grow hair as it is to cultivate the soil to grow a garden?" This was her sixth business principle. She built her appeals for her specific audiences and grounded the language in references and real life experiences that they would understand and relate to. As her wealth increased, Madam Walker also found herself inspired by Pittsburgh hero Andrew Carnegie. He had recently given six hundred thousand dollars to Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute. His famous essay, "The Gospel of Wealth," became the central tenet of Madam Walker's seventh principle. Carnegie said, quote, "The man who dies leaving behind him millions of available wealth will pass away." Unwept, unhonored, and unsung, surplus wealth which a man accumulates in a community is only a sacred trust to be administered for the good of the community in which it was accumulated. End quote. Madam Walker was no man, but she saw the value here. If she wanted to become a patron of her community, as Carnegie had, she needed to ground her mail order business in a more permanent fashion. In 1910, Madam Walker wrote, quote, "Now what I would like to do is to establish a factory. We could form a stock company and make this one of the largest factories in the United States." End quote. In order to officially establish her business as a corporation, Madam Walker appealed directly to her other hero, Booker Washington, for funding, telling him that quote. White firms want me to sell out my rights to them, which I refuse to do. End quote. Washington turned her down, perhaps thinking her industry was a fad, or still infused with racism. Madam Walker made it her goal to one day join Washington's National Negro Business League. By the end of 1910, Madam Walker chose Indianapolis for the location of her next business headquarters. Due to its central location to railways and the burgeoning highway system, she bought a ten thousand dollar property and constructed her new factory, laboratory, and salon behind it. To cover the costs, she accepted boarders at the property. In this way, she was already following Carnegie's morals from the Gospel of Wealth. She would cook for her boarders and then rush into the back rooms to develop her formulas and products. And as old habits die hard, she ended every day by doing her own laundry. Through the Indianapolis community, Madam Walker met a man who would become very important, personally and professionally, the up-and-coming lawyer Freeman Briley Ransom. As a graduate from Columbia University, he was a great hope for the black community. He boarded at Madam Walker's property and became a trusted consultant. In 
Her earnings totaled $11,000, $200,000 in modern-day value. With Ransom's adept analysis at her command, Madam Walker realized that there were three million black women in America. If she managed to sell most of them just one tin of her hair care product, her income could potentially reach over a million dollars. This became her new goal. Madam Walker decided she was going to be a millionaire. Yet she still couldn't get enough investors to fund her hair care factory in Indianapolis. So she mortgaged her property and incorporated without the assistance of any investors at all. Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company was officially born. Having proven her hypothesis that hair care for working-class black women was an enormous industry, Madam Walker set out to prove a larger statement. She wasn't just a flash in the pan. She was an institution in the making. As Madam Walker's company churned into full-time business, the proprietor's next challenge was solidifying her status in the American community at large. Once again, she turned to the people around her and grounded her business in providing benefits to the people who had gotten her this far. 1911 was the year of Madam Walker ingratiating herself with Indianapolis. Her factory employed nearly 40 locals, and the madam herself would pay local children to run her errands. She also sponsored the construction of a branch of the YMCA, an essential resource for the poor. She was expanding her practice of the gospel of wealth, although she did Carnegie one better. The madam was far from the untouchable billionaire Carnegie was when he began his campaign of good deeds. Madam Walker raised herself and her people up simultaneously. By the end of 1912, the 44-year-old Madam Walker increased her yearly earnings to $13,000, ten times the amount she had made in her first year of business. There was still one big nagging problem for her, though. According to the great man's biographer, Lewis Harlan, national icon Booker Washington still opposed, quote, membership in the National Negro Business League for Cosmetics Manufacturers on the grounds that they fostered white beauty standards. This was a claim Madam Walker fought against her entire life. She was quoted in an interview with the following exclamation, Right here, let me correct the erroneous impression held by some that I claim to straighten hair. I deplore such an impression because I have always held myself out as a hair culturist. I grow hair. End quote. Madam Walker strove to prove this fact to Washington and those like him. Historian Kathy Pice described, in reference to Madam Walker's campaign, how there was no identifiable cosmetics industry before the 20th century until, quote, Madam Walker devised a national system of mass production, distribution, marketing, and advertising that transformed local patterns of buying and selling cosmetics, end quote. Madam Walker's eighth business principle, naturally springing from her previous tactics, was persistence. She idolized Washington and his cause and refused to let him ignore her. She appealed to their common sense of ideals. This persistence finally paid off at the end of 1912. 
Washington invited Madam Walker to speak at his Tuskegee Institute in Chicago. By the end of her talk, she had demonstrated her products on Washington, his family members, and over 80 people in attendance. She finished her demo with an inspiring speech, quote, I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. End quote. Madam Walker had self realized her own independence. Upon returning from this conference, she instructed her lawyer, Ransom, to draw up divorce papers from CJ. She had learned he was a philanderer and could see he no longer brought anything useful to the business. Their arrangement had come to an end. On her terms, all that would be left of him in her company was his name. Madam Walker would never need to marry again. She had been used for the last time. From here on out, Madam Walker was fully in charge of her destiny. And now it's time for another quick break. Gossip is the first ever comedic soap opera podcast from the mind of actor and comedian Allison Raskin. Gossip is not a podcast podcast, but we do think you'll like it. Gossip focuses on three unlikely friends Valerie, Mia, and Bethany. They meet each week at the Golden Cup Coffee Corner to dish about the latest rumors floating around their not so traditional suburban town, Golden Acres. There's infidelity and epic fights, crazy sisters and former bachelorettes, girls going missing, and murder. Maybe even a serial killer priest. And each week, you'll learn more about the three women's juicy pasts as the story unfolds. If you're a fan of shows like Jane the Virgin, Desperate Housewives, or Big Little Lies, you'll love gossip. Get in on the rumors now before you're left out. Listen to episodes one and two of Gossip now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your shows. Now, let's get back to our show. In 1913, yearly increases continued for the newly independent Madam Walker. Within four months of 1913, she had made more than all of her 1912 earnings, around $12,000 or $200,000 in today's dollars. With these funds, Madam Walker decided to branch out. Her ninth principle is a familiar one to many business leaders on the edge of explosive growth diversification. Ransom might have originally suggested this. But Madam Walker took to it like an expert. She wanted to construct a safety net for her own business. She still believed in the necessity of her cosmetics industry, but she knew the market was a fickle place, especially for a black woman. With Lelia as her scout, Madam Walker purchased real estate in Indianapolis, Los Angeles, and New York City. Lelia saw true value in the up and coming neighborhood of Harlem, so Madam Walker let her daughter take the lead in New York. Meanwhile, she diversified in another direction by traveling to the Caribbean and Cuba. 
She saw no reason that international black communities wouldn't have the same needs as those in America. So she directed the Walker method to go international. A more modern parallel can be found in the company Tesla, run by Elon Musk. Tesla's initial goal was to create affordable, stylish, and highly efficient electric cars. In a way, like Madam Walker's business, it revolved around the aesthetics of the cars themselves. However, as time has passed and more and more car companies get into the electric game, Musk changed the nature of Tesla's goals. He dedicated massive resources to construct what he calls gigafactories to produce more car batteries. Instead of focusing solely on cars, Tesla diversified into the business of batteries. Musk saw past the aesthetics and dove right under the hood, where a more foundational and valuable business could be found. Like Musk, Madam Walker saw that tastes and preferences change rapidly in the cosmetics business, so she thought like a true businesswoman and invested her earnings in more stable areas. Through these tactics, Madam Walker crafted a reliable legacy. Those fears she harbored at the turn of the century about leaving something behind for her family were finally assuaged. Her daughter and her daughter's daughter would be taken care of, even if something tragic were to happen to Madam Walker. But in achieving this initial goal, Madam Walker had expanded her playing field of concern. She wanted to make sure many people like her had secure and stable ways of finding income and success. Through 1914 and 1915, the tireless Madam Walker hit the road once more. She developed a new marketing technique utilizing what she called illustrated lectures. During the seminars where she displayed her products and trained new agents, Madam Walker also displayed photographs and newspaper clippings of other black success stories following the fall of slavery. The more she did this, the more she saw how inspired her audiences became upon hearing these stories. Her strategy evolved again. She wrote to Ransom and told him she wished to quote appoint some energetic, capable women in certain territories, especially through the South and Middle West, to continue these illustrated lectures. Madam Walker would pay these women $100 a month, plus a percentage cut of the sales they made while putting on these seminars. This was an extension and combination of her fifth and seventh principles. It was grassroots in that it involved her consumer base in the business, and it reflected Madam Walker's dedication to the gospel of wealth. She was helping her community invest in itself. This idea felt more urgent following the death of Booker Washington in 1915. It also pushed Madam Walker to consider another big change, moving the headquarters of the Walker Manufacturing Company yet again. In 1916, that decision became reality as Madam Walker moved full-time into the beautiful townhome that Lelia had been refurbishing in Harlem. Madam Walker was so impressed with the style of the home that she decided to keep it separate from her new factory and laboratory. Lawyer Ransom considered the move a huge risk, and he told as much to Lelia. He said, quote, 
There are those who say live while you're living, but I can imagine no greater disgrace than to be known as your mother is known, and in the end give your enemies a chance to rejoice in the fact that you died poor." Ransom still had the goal of reaching a million dollars in earnings in his sight, and didn't want Madam Walker to jeopardize that by completely transitioning out of Indianapolis. But he should have trusted Madam Walker's perceptions. The legendary Harlem Renaissance was ramping up in New York City. The city itself now had over two million residents, and 100,000 of those residents were black. Additionally, following the death of Washington, the NAACP rose to prominence under W.E.B. Du Bois' leadership. As more and more black leadership gatherings were held in New York City, Madam Walker knew she needed to be a part of this movement to truly enhance her brand and mission. Madam Walker still wanted to make a mark and gain membership in the National Association of Colored Women, or NACW. The more she pursued this, the more political she became. She soon learned of a striking fact. Between 1889 and her present day, over 3,000 people had been lynched in America. This riled her up more than anything. New York City was the place, she told Ransom, and the move was completed. While it did carry some risks, Madam Walker's decision to shift location with the culture has many modern-day parallels. For example, General Electric recently announced it was moving from its longtime headquarters in suburban Connecticut to the bustling and growing Boston. They did this to follow young talent and minds of the millennial generation, who prefer to congregate in cities full of cultural opportunities, high-end apartment options, and developed public transit. A really modern take on this tactic can be seen in Amazon's recent announcement that cities across North America now had the chance to pitch themselves to Amazon. Whoever won would become the location of their next headquarters. While Amazon was only considering cities with more than a million people, strong mass transit, and easy flight options to New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Seattle, this announcement also jump-started a competition. They asked cities to prove themselves to Amazon instead of the other way around. New Jersey, for example, offered up $7 billion in tax breaks for the corporation if they chose Newark as the new headquarters. Amazon understands that cities want to be attractive options for the young and ambitious. This new strategy illustrates how deep a connection there is between location and business opportunity. As Leslie Wagner writes in an article for Trade and Industry Development, A business's headquarter locations is just another piece of its overall image. Madam Walker knew that her business was built on its image and identity. By moving the Walker Company to Harlem, Madam Walker signaled her acknowledgement of the civil rights movement coalescing in New York City. The move also communicated a message to her rivals. Madam Walker was big enough for the Big Apple now, and she was just getting started. Madam Walker called her new home the Walker Hair Parlor and Lelia College. With herself and her New York agents as trainers, she offered degrees from Lelia College. Biographer Bundles writes that this, quote, 
tapped into the changing attitudes of women who longed to adopt a more urban, sophisticated look while also advocating the personal grooming and the employment opportunities offered by a degree. Quote. Again, she was helping communities to invest in themselves through a combination of her fifth principle, a dedication to grassroots involvement, and her seventh, honoring Carnegie's philosophy of the gospel of wealth. Madam Walker saw this as the way to become as influential as her heroes, W.E.B. Dubois and the businesswomen from the NACW. She described her vision to Ransom as such. In any town across the United States where there were five or more Walker agents, Madam Walker would provide the means for them to organize into charity groups. She would then give out annual awards for the most prolific of these groups. In other words, her tenth business principle was to incentivize activism in business. She used business and financial gain to fuel charity. This would help the Walker Company both recruit through these charity efforts and donate through the funds of their expanded business. A modern-day analog can clearly be seen in the footwear company Tom's. At the outset of their business, they dubbed their model the one-for-one one program. For each pair of shoes sold, the company would donate pairs to children in need across the world. By centering corporate social responsibility in their business, they attracted consumers who felt powerless in a globalized but disparate world. Also, much like Madam Walker's company, Tom's understood that when people bought a pair of shoes and realized the benefits, they would encourage their networks to do the same. This was yet another form of the grassroots marketing practiced by Madam Walker and Earl Tupper in the early 20th century. Madam Walker saw this newest principle as her first step into true philanthropy, yet it's still innately tied into her primary principle of turning necessity into invention and opportunity. During her 1916 tour of the southern states, she decided to expand her potential agents and customers to those who couldn't afford it before, by lowering the cost of her seminars to $10. But even as the heart of the Walker Company grew, there was a sickness growing in the background. November 1916 brought near tragedy. Madam Walker's car stalled out on railroad tracks. The car was nearly hit at full speed by a passing train. Madam Walker's life flashed before her eyes, and she went into a full-blown panic attack. Although they avoided the accident, her health collapsed, and her tour was postponed. The doctors ordered immediate bed rest. Hypertension and an overworked schedule were the doctor's diagnoses, but the true cause went unseen for now. So even as the Walker Manufacturing Company sped along toward the madam's goal of a million dollars in earnings, the woman herself had pushed too hard for too long. It was uncertain now whether she could even survive to reach her desired milestone. Madam Walker's brush with death forced her to confront the fact that in the pursuit of increasing others' well-being, she had let her own slide into disrepair. With the outbreak of the United States' descent into World War I, 
black soldiers enlisted to prove themselves to their fellow Americans. They saw this as a battle for civil rights. As they fought, Madam Walker needed to decide if she should sit back and let her business climb toward its million-dollar milestone, or if she should get back into the political game at this crucial moment and continue to put her body on the line for the community. In the end, it wasn't much of a choice at all. Madam Walker continued her good work. In 1917, Madam Walker reached out to a few colleges in the South, such as Florida Baptist Academy and Wiley University. According to biographer Bundles, she set up a deal where, quote, in exchange for $100 to furnish a training facility with running water, a basin, and work tables, she proposed placing a Walker agent on the faculty. End quote. Meanwhile, she had called all of her New York Walker Method agents to organize into the inaugural chapter of the Madam C. J. Walker Benevolent Association. On August 31, 1917, Madam Walker brought over 200 agents from across the country to a massive anti-lynching demonstration in Philadelphia. She was laying the groundwork for her big move into the activist space. This was not just a big moment for 50-year-old Madam Walker, but a watershed event for protest in America. Bundles writes that it was the first time, quote, American women entrepreneurs organized to use their money and their numbers to assert their political will. End quote. Madam Walker had officially followed in the footsteps of Booker Washington. W. E. B. Du Bois and the N. A. C. W. She had repaid her debt and doubled down again. Yet this moment of triumph was marred by a definitive diagnosis from a doctor in New York. Madam Walker had nephritis. This was an inflammation of the kidneys with unknown causes, and at the time, few treatment options. They told her she needed to cease working entirely. Of course, I think we know by now that Madam Walker was never going to follow that advice. There was still so much left to do, and she got to work right away following the protest in August 1917. She was expanding her vision of empowerment. Her eleventh and final business principle was enfranchising others to do what she herself had done back in 1902. Madam Walker was going to franchise her business all over the country. In exchange for financing the construction of salons for her top agents in every state, she would receive a small percentage of their sales. However, the rest of these new operations would be left in the hands of her agents. Essentially, she was opening the opportunity for people to begin their own businesses, just as Madam Walker had done after working for Annie Turnbow. In the modern age, Subway is the king of the franchise model. Founder Fred DeLuca started franchising locations of his business in 1974. Today, the process remains open, and every Subway location is owned by a franchisee. Anyone can attend a seminar where the basic facts about owning and operating a Subway are given, just like Madam Walker's seminars. The course lasts two weeks. And can be taken in locations all over the world. 
if hopeful candidates pass an exam, they're offered financial assistance in acquiring equipment and even paying for the franchise fee. For the remaining years of operation, Subway takes 8% of gross sales along with a royalty rate. Aside from that, the franchisee supports and profits from the business. This simple and open strategy helped Subway outnumber its chief competitor, McDonald's, in 2011. Compared to McDonald's 32,000 locations, Subway had over 33,000 franchise stores open. Madam Walker's franchising principle was still committed to extending the reach of her brand, but it was also infused with her fully developed social consciousness. She was letting her agents become something more than agents. She was letting them become business leaders in their own right. In a letter to Ransom, she waxed poetically about this new vision. Quote, I shall expect to find my agents taking the lead in every locality, not only in operating a successful business, but in every moment in the interest of our community. End quote. This coincided with the opening of Madame Walker's grandest accomplishment yet, her new and final home, the ornate Villa Luaro in upstate New York. Again, writer Tanana Reeve Du describes this effort in the following clip. She liked to dress. She liked to have on her furs. She liked the jewelry. She, you know, I guess as someone who hadn't had very much in the beginning, she more than made up for it. In the end,、uh, by the end of her life, she she'd built a huge estate on Irvington,、uh, in Irvington, New York, on the Hudson River, which she really saw, I think, as a showcase, so that African Americans from all over the country could know that their money, their patronage, had helped build this empire. 1918 saw her earnings rise yet again to $300,000. This occurred hand in hand with the Walker Company expanding into the skincare business through a facial cream the laboratories had developed. However, her involvement in the business slowed down as her sickness overtook her. In April 1919, Madame Walker once again collapsed due to exhaustion. Her kidney disease had rapidly advanced. And she spent weeks drifting in and out of consciousness. Her doctors overheard her speak the following during those long, strained weeks: "Quote, my desire now is to do more than ever for my race. I would love to live for them. I've caught the vision. I can see what they need." End quote. This time, though, her vision wasn't just a marketing tool. Madame Walker truly knew that Black Americans could influence policy and finance, and she wanted to stay at the forefront. She wasn't ready to go. But a month after her initial collapse, Madame Walker passed away on May twenty fifth, nineteen nineteen, at only fifty one years of age. Many obituaries sang her praises. The Associated Press wrote, "Quote." Madam C. J. Walker was the wealthiest black woman in the United States, if not the entire world. End quote. One that would have meant much more to her came from scholar and activist W. E. B. Du Bois himself. Quote, It is not too much to say that Madam Walker revolutionized the personal habits and appearance of millions of human beings. End quote. 
After years of controversy and trying to legitimize her practice in the eyes of those who worried she was just another person trying to exploit black beauty standards, Madam Walker earned her place in the Pantheon. However, one goal was not reached. Madam Walker's business earnings never reached a million dollars in one year. Several outlets mistakenly reported that Madam Walker had been a millionaire when she died. This was not true. At her death, the Walker Company's holdings totaled $600,000. Valued today, of course, that is over $6 million. But history has clearly shown that this watermark goal was not ever going to be her true legacy anyway. Instead, it was her story. Just as she had used her own experience to discover a necessity to create opportunities for herself and others, and just as she utilized her own image to create her business and products, Madam Walker's life itself was her most important work. As Madam Walker, born Sarah Breedlove just on the other side of slavery's brutish and oppressive history, slipped into sleep a few days before she died, her final words rang true. Quote, I want to live to help my race. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson.